afternoon. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, and I'm an internist and cardiologist and professor of medicine at Texas A&M University School of Medicine. I'm on the Baylor-Dallas campus, uh, and I've been integrally involved in the response to COVID-19. Uh, now, um, the opinions I'll express are those of my own and not necessarily those of my institution. Um, I can tell you that in my field, I'm an academic doctor, I see patients, but I'm very involved in research. I'm an editor of two major journals. Uh, in my field, I'm the most published person in my field, which deals with the heart and the kidneys in the world in history. And when COVID-19 hit, I saw it as our medical Super Bowl. And there were going to be doctors like Dr. Urso coming out of wherever they worked to face the virus. And there were doctors in the hospital that just had to receive the virus. And then there were those who headed for the sidelines. And then there were those that were uh, detractors against the pandemic. And so as I started to survey the literature, um, I had patients with heart and lung disease who needed urgent treatment. And I refused to let an illness, which lasted for two weeks at home, before they got sick enough to be hospitalized, I refused to let a patient languish at home with no treatment and then be hospitalized when it was too late. It was obvious. That was obvious in April that that was the case. So I used the best tools or drugs available at the time. And these are appropriately prescribed off-label. Remember, a label is an advertising label. A label isn't a scientific document. Sure, it's, there is an appropriately prescribed off-label use of conventional medicine to treat an illness. And I, uh, in May, I put together a team of doctors because the, the, the group that was facing the pandemic to the greatest degree was in Milan, Italy, so most of them were in the Coracle Italian Research Network. We summarized uh, all we knew about the available drugs, and we published our findings in the August uh, uh, 8th issue of the American Journal of Medicine. And the title of that paper was The Pathophysiologic Basis and Rationale for Early Ambulatory Treatment. And it had a premise. There's two bad outcomes to COVID-19, hospitalization and death. The second premise, if we don't do something before the hospitalization, we can never stop it. We can never stop it. And I have to tell you, when I, and I was the lead author in that paper, but we had dozens of authors from Italy, uh, India, UCLA, Emory. We had the best uh, institutions in the United States. I can tell you the interesting thing was there was 50,000 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on COVID. Not a single one told a doctor how to treat it. Not a single one. When does that happen? I was absolutely stunned. And when this paper was published in the American Journal of Medicine, it became a lightning rod. Oh my gosh, it became the most cited paper in basically all of medicine at that time. The world started, and, and boy, the world started knocking on my door. And I said, oh my Lord, I just can't believe what became untapped. And um, I had never been on social media before. Uh, and uh, my daughter, uh, who was home from law school, was talking to her about it. She said, well, why don't you make a YouTube video? So I made a YouTube video with four slides from the paper. This is a peer-reviewed paper published in one of the best medical journals in the world. Four slides. I even wore a tie and a suit, and she showed me how to record it in PowerPoint, and I posted it on YouTube. It went absolutely viral. And within about a week, YouTube said, you violated the terms of the, of the um, uh, community. 
And that's when Senator Johnson's office got involved in Washington and said, oh my gosh, this is important scientific information to help patients in the middle of this crisis, and social media is striking it down. Based on what authority? Well, one thing led to another, uh, and I became the lead witness for the U.S. Senate testimony of November 19, 2020. And the reason why there was Senate testimony is because there was a near total block on any information of treatment to patients. A near total block. And so what had happened over time is that we had gotten into a cycle in America uh, of no information on treatment. Patients actually think that the virus is untreatable. And so what happens is they go out to get a diagnosis. Now, I'm a COVID survivor. My wife in the galley is a COVID survivor. My father in a nursing home is a COVID survivor. You get handed a diagnostic test. It says, here, you're COVID positive. Go home. Is there any treatment? No. Is there any resources I can call? No. Any referral lines, hotlines? No. Any research hotlines? No. That's the standard of care in the United States. And if we go to any one of our testing centers today in, the, in Texas, I bet that's the standard of care. I bet that's the standard of care. No wonder we have had 45,000 deaths in Texas. The average person in Texas thinks there's no treatment. They honestly think there's no treatment. They don't even know about these EUA antibodies. You heard from a 90-year-old gentleman who got bamlanivimab. Terrific. Where's the focus? There's such a focus on the vaccine. Where's the focus on people sick right now? This committee ought to know where all these monoclonal antibodies are. They ought to know where all the treatment protocols are. They ought to have a list of the treatment centers in Texas that actually treat patients with COVID-19. So I led the initiative. The second paper was published in a dedicated issue of reviews in cardiovascular medicine. Now I had 57 authors, including Dr. Urso, Dr. Emmanuel, uh, uh, lead doctors in Houston, San Antonio, all over. And it was, it was another worldwide paper. And now we have it updated, integrated. So yes, we use drugs to affect viable replication. The antibodies are terrific. We can use intracellular anti-infectives in that box. Uh, we use corticosteroids and inflammatory drugs. The best anti-inflammatory drug is colchicine. You've probably never heard about it. In the largest, highest quality randomized trial, over 4,000 patients, double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, there's a 50% reduction in mortality. No word of it. None. Complete block to anybody, colchicine. How can that be? How can that be? And then the most deadly part of the, the viral infection is thrombosis. So I have always treated my patients with something to treat the virus, something to treat the inflammation, and something to treat thrombosis, just as Dr. Urso had. And I have very, very sick patients, and I've lost two. But I have to tell you, what has gone on has been beyond belief. How many of you have turned on a local news station or a national cable news station and ever gotten an update on treatment at home? How many of you have ever gotten a single word about what to do when you get the, the hand of the diagnosis of COVID-19? No wonder. That is a complete and total failure at every level. Okay, let's take the White House. How come we didn't have a panel of doctors assigned to put all their efforts and stop these hospitalizations? Why don't we have doctors who actually treated patients get together in a group and every week give us an update? Why didn't we have that? Why didn't we have that at the state level? Zero. Why don't we have any reports about how many patients were treated and spared hospitalizations? From all the, I listened to six hours of testimony today. Zero. Zero. We have a complete and total blank spot on treatment. It is a blanking phenomenon. 
at least in the United States, there's some heroes. Now, the American Society of Physicians and Surgeons took the lead. They're the group. They've identified 35 treatment centers in Texas. They know who they are. They have emergency hotlines. Uh, they helped uh, Dr. Hall put together this uh, very brief pamphlet, but there's more an extensive one. We can pass it around to everyone that at least gives people half a chance to find out about information, okay? Uh, this is a complete and total travesty to have a fatal disease and not treat it. Now, the National Institutes of Health and the Infectious Disease Society of America started putting out guidelines of the treatment of COVID-19, and to this date, they nearly exclusively deal with a hospitalized patient. The two papers that I have published as the lead author and supported by wonderful people by Dr. Urso are the only publications in the peer-reviewed literature that tell doctors how to treat COVID-19 as an outpatient based on the support of scientific information, the only two. The Home Treatment Guide by the American Physicians and Surgeons is the only source of information available to patients on how to treat COVID-19 at home. The only source. So what could be done right here, right now? There's gonna be more people that die in Texas and it's an absolute tragedy. How about tomorrow? Let's have a law that says there's not a single result given out without a treatment guide and without a hotline of how to get into research. Let's put a staffer on this and find out all the research available in Texas, and let's not have a single person go home with, with a test result with their fatal diagnosis, sitting at home, going into two weeks of despair before they succumb to hospitalization and death. It is unimaginable in America that we can have such a complete and total blind spot. I blame the doctors for not stepping up. Where was the medical society stopping up and putting effort on this? How about from the federal and state agencies? There never was a single bit of group collaborative effort to stop the hospitalizations. Nobody even kind of thought about it. Bob Hall had me on a teleconference in, in April or May, and we're like, wait a minute. How come, where's UT Southwestern? I'm a graduate of UT Southwestern. Where's A&M? Where's the rest of the universities? How come we're not stopping this? How come we are not stopping this? But it gets worse, because in the paper I published in December of, uh, of 2020, you know what he did? I had, I had a terrific uh, doctor from Brazil. We went through country by country by country and just asked the question, what are other countries doing? When was the last time you turned on the news and ever got a window to the outside world? When did you ever get an update about how the rest of the world is handling COVID? Never. What's happened in this pandemic is the world has closed in on us. There's only one doctor whose face is on TV now. One. Not a panel. Doctors, we always work in groups. We always have different opinions. There's not a single media doctor on TV who's ever treated a COVID patient. Not a single one. There's not a single person in the White House task force has ever treated a patient. Why don't we do something bold? Why don't we put together a panel of doctors that have actually treated outpatients with COVID-19 and get them together for a meeting? And why don't we exchange ideas? And why don't we say how we can finish the pandemic strongly? Isn't it amazing? Think about this. Think about the complete and total blind spot. So what happened, I can tell you what happened. What happened in around May, it became known that the virus was gonna be amenable to a vaccine. All efforts on treatment were dropped. The National Institutes of Health actually had a multi-drug program. They dropped it after 20 patients, said we can't find the patients the most disingenuous announcement of all time. And then warp speed went full tilt for vaccine development. And there was a silencing of any information on treatment, any. Silencing, scrubbed from Twitter, YouTube, can't get papers published on this. You can't, we can't even get information out in our own medical literature on this. 
There's been a complete scrubbing. So this program has been one of try to reduce the spread of the virus and wait for a vaccine. And when we, va when we vaccinate, all efforts have to be on vaccination. And probably if I had four hours of vaccination on here. Think about it as we sit here today, the calculations in Texas on herd immunity. The calculations are we're at 80% herd immunity right now with no vaccine effect, 80%. And more people are developing COVID today. They're going to become immune. People who develop COVID have complete and durable immunity. And a very important principle, complete and durable. You can't beat natural immunity. You can't vaccinate on top of it and make it better. There's no scientific, clinical, or safety rationale for ever vaccinating a COVID-recovered patient. There's no rationale for ever testing a COVID-recovered patient. My wife and I are COVID-recovered. Why do we go through the testing outside? There's absolutely no rationale. I'd encourage this committee to actually look at what's being done and ask, is there any rationale? Is there any rationale for anything? L listen, there's plenty of COVID-recovered patients. Let them forego the vaccine and let people who are clamoring for it get it. But at 80% herd immunity, in the vaccine trials, fewer than 1% in the vaccine and the placebo actually get COVID, fewer than 1%. The vaccine's gonna have a 1% public health impact. That's what the data says. It's not gonna save us. We're already 80% herd immune. If we're strategically targeted, we can actually close out the pandemic very well with the vaccine, but strategically targeted. People under 50 who fundamentally have no health risks, there's no scientific rationale for them to ever become vaccinated. There's no scientific rationale. One of the mistakes I heard today as a rationale for vaccination is asymptomatic spread, and I want you to be very clear about this. My opinion is there is a low degree, if any, of asymptomatic spread. Sick person gives it to sick person. And the Chinese have published a study, British Medical Journal, 11 million people. They try to find asymptomatic spread. You can't find it. And that's been you know, one of important pieces of misinformation. When Senator Hall called a conference call, what should we do in the Capitol when we reopened? I said, you know what? You know what we do at Baylor? You walk in and they zap your temperature. You got a temperature check and go in. Do we test everybody who walks into the Baylor hospital? No. Are they a lot sicker than everybody in this room? You better believe it. So why would we do something here at the Capitol that has absolutely positively no scientific rationale and then do it in this context? So my testimony as I sit here today is COVID-19 has always been a treatable illness. A very large study from McKinney, Texas, another one from New York City, show that when doctors treat patients early who are over age 50 with medical problems with a sequence multi-drug approach with the available drugs, uh, four to six drugs that are available uh, uh, to them, now the monoclonal antibodies are better, there's an 85% reduction in hospitalizations and death. 85%, 85%, I want you to remember that number, 85%. We have over 500,000 deaths in the United States. The preventable fraction could have been as high as 85% if our pandemic response would have been laser focused on the problem, the sick patient right in front of us. We were focused over here and focused over there and focused on masks and what have you. Laser focused, sick patient, treat them. I want you to talk about your studies first, the August 2020. What is it, in layman's terms, that you found in that doing that study? 
Well, thanks for having me. And uh, these are my own opinions and not those of any of uh, my institutions or organizations. Um, I turned my career on a dime academically in March and April of uh, 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic hit and, and we had casualties in our family members and it was quite a, a scramble. And like any doctor, I took the view that this infection uh, must be treatable. There must be some approach to treat it. And in fact, the doctors very quickly were figuring out how to treat it in the hospital, uh, going well, well beyond mechanical ventilation. Doctors were using a variety of different drugs. And it became uh, reasonably clear in the spring of 2020, three major components to the infection. There was rapid viral replication, what's called cytokine storm or the immune system going crazy, and then thrombosis. And in fact, the fatal part of the illness is development of blood clots in the lungs and throughout the body. So once that was sufficiently known, I put together a team of US uh, and Italian collaborators and Italy had, had gotten a, a vast experience before us in the first few months. And we synthesized the literature on what would be the rationale to treat each component of the infection and how we could put this together into a safe protocol. And then in December, 2020, uh, you did a very interesting study that I thought we would have done a while back, which is you went to various countries a lot of third world countries to see what exactly they were doing. And what did you find there? Well, the, the pandemic is a global problem. And so it makes sense that every country in the world is grappling with this. And one of the shortcomings we've had from a leadership is we haven't seen any global collaboration. If you turn on the news, you just never get any update about how the rest of the world is handling COVID-19. I had done that from the very beginning. So our first paper appeared in the American Journal of Medicine in the August 2020 issue, and it came in print in January 2021. And at the time, there were uh, 55,000 papers in the peer-reviewed literature, but not a single one taught doctors how you to treat COVID-19. You and mentioned so, that in your talk. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, I thought that was interesting that the literature had a, a sense of confusion to it, that no one really knew what to do. Uh, keep in mind the Infectious Disease Society of America, the NIH, the WHO, the FDA, the EMA, the TGA. There wasn't a single global body that gave any guidance to doctors on how to comprehensively treat COVID-19 uh, uh, from the onset of the illness in order to prevent two bad outcomes, hospitalization and death. And it was very important to realize those are both bad outcomes. And the hospitalization doesn't save everybody from death. So it became very clear that this virus gave us about a two week head start that if we started treating it early, in fact, we could reduce hospitalization and death. And so what happened uh, from August of 2020 to December of 2020 is there was a, a great advances. So now there were outpatient uh, antibody infusions we could use that were approved by the US FDA EUA process. And then we had data supporting uh, ivermectin, colchicine, really high quality randomized trials. So the synthesis of what was published in December of 2020 in reviews in cardiovascular medicine, a dedicated issue to COVID-19 was a synthesis of what was uh, the best practice uh, in terms of use of drugs. It involved 57 authors 
who had experience in treating COVID-19 in the outpatient realm. And we didn't have that from any government agency or any media doctor. To this day, there's never been a government agency official doctor or a media doctor who's uh, got up in front of the American public and, and had credibility in treating COVID-19. Not a single one to this day. So when Americans turn on the TV, there's not a single doctor. Why do you think that is? It is a complete oblivion. Why? From the very beginning, um, I think it's, it boils down to courage. And uh, doctors don't have to check any box applying to medical school on courage. But a courageous statement would have been this. Well, wait a second. Why do you need courage to come out and give information from the front lines, from the people treating COVID that might save other people? Because it's exactly what you said. It's the front lines. And front lines is a military term. Front lines means that people are putting their lives on the, on this, uh, on the line here. Why don't the people who aren't on the front lines, un- why are they unwilling to listen to you? Let me finish. So okay. the front lines uh, imply we're in a battle, and we are. Uh, a battle implies that those who engage in the battle uh, are going to need courage. Uh, many who are not going to engage in the battle are going to stand on the sidelines, and some who are very fearful are going to be detractors. But let me say this very clearly. A leader who had courage would have said in March, hospitalizations and deaths are a terrible outcome. I'm going to put together a team of doctors, and they uh, are going to learn how to prevent these hospitalizations and death, and we're going to handle this problem uh, in that manner. There is not a single leader, not a single uh, media doctor, not a single public health doctor who uttered those words. So if they can't say those words, they certainly can't put together the team of doctors to handle the problem. I said those words, I put together the teams of doctors, and I handled the problem. And you're talking to the only person in the world who's published two highly cited peer-reviewed papers, the only papers that teach doctors how to comprehensively handle COVID-19 at home using available drugs to prevent hospitalization and death. Now to give credit, others have developed protocols and others have developed approaches that are embodied in a comprehensive plan that I've laid out that deals with uh, nutraceutical supplements, off-target antiviral drugs and direct antiviral drugs, the use of immunomodulators, steroids and colchicine, and then very importantly, antithrombotics, aspirin, and drugs that inhibit the coagulation system. That is a comprehensive approach. We do it in the hospital anyway, and it makes all the sense in the world that we do it on day one in high-risk patients to prevent hospitalization and death. Well, what I find interesting is that the third world countries that don't have the money to develop vaccines or don't have the, and they have, you know, they use all these old drugs that they were the ones really who came up with the first packages of uh, treatment packages for COVID, right? Am I correct on this? Because I reading your December, 2020 um, study, which I'm gonna link by the way to this interview because it also contains a protocol, uh, a protocol diagram that I think people should see and, and have. Um, 
I just find it interesting that, for example, in Chiapas, Mexico, they actually went house to house and handed a uh, early treatment package to everybody. And they have the fewest deaths of any state in Mexico, for example. Okay. You, so what was in that package? Do you know? Well, here's some important principles. We knew that it was a serious viral infection. And like all viral infections, single drugs weren't going to work. So I knew that from the very beginning. So How come you knew that? But a lot of these people, <laughs> these other doctors did not. All I have to tell you is that uh, my entire career as an internist uh, and cardiologist, I have seen patients with a variety of illnesses. With HIV, single drugs didn't work. We always use drugs in combination. The same thing with hepatitis B the hepatitis and hepatitis C, and we can go on and on. Um, even in serious bacterial infections, we don't use single drugs. We use you know two or three antibiotics in patients in the hospital. So to me, it made sense that we weren't going to find a single miracle cure. And it was a fool's errand to try a single drug, do a very small trial, give up in the middle and say the drug doesn't work. And that was done repetitively for a variety of drugs like remdesivir, convalescent plasma, um, barcinitib, uh, tozolizumab. We can go on and on and on about the drugs that were used. Um, outpatient drugs, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, favipiravir, doxycycline. We can go on and on. Uh, to me, the approach was to find signals of benefit. We didn't prove, but signals of benefit and acceptable safety, as we did with the other infections, and then assemble them into regimens that could reduce hospitalization and death. And it takes about four to six drugs, but it, this approach reduces hospitalization and death by 85%. Now, you may ask, why didn't others have that degree of courage and perception and the ability to synthesize. Well, I have to tell you, it may be that those characteristics are rare in the setting of a pandemic. It may be that it's just rare. Well, it, I mean, I read your study and I read about the success of these packages. So these, um, what is it that you call it in your study? It's called multi uh, sequenced multi-drug therapy. That's what you call it. And you talk about in the beginning of your, in the intro of your study, you talk about how the U.S. was focused on three things. They were focused on containment. They were focused on, um, on late treatment and, and hospitalization, right? What was the third thing? I can't remember now. Well, the, the, the third thing was the focus of the day, which is vaccination. But And vaccination. Right. Exactly. So I've always told, taught doctors that, um, and I'm a trained epidemiologist, that for a pandemic response, there are four pillars. One is to try to reduce the spread of infection, contagion control. And gosh knows, we've heard a ton about that in terms of masks and social distancing lockdowns. The next is to treat the problem, treat the problem, early treatment. This is very important. Any public health official who gets up in front of a country and does not treat the problem has to do a care, has to do a really rapid self-evaluation. We have had now public health officials in front of us on TV for a year without a single mention of treating the problem. 
Treating the problem ought to be in every single press briefing. Treating the problem should be in weekly updates. We should have weekly review of the literature. Uh, we have really had uh, a lack of courageous and competent leadership in pandemic response. The, the third pillar is hospitalization and doctors, you know, that's what we do. We took care of the hospitalization. We didn't need the government to tell us how to manage patients in the hospital. Doctors did the best they could, but it's very late stage. It doesn't save all the patients. And believe me, if you're a patient with COVID-19, you don't wanna be in the hospital. And these hospital stays are very long. They're very uncomfortable. Many end in death. The last pillar would be vaccination. And what happened in our country is there was a complete oblivion to treating the problem. Uh, there was a hyper focus on trying to reduce the spread. And then there was a great gamble. And I published uh, an op-ed in the middle of the summer on this, and it was titled The Great Gamble of the COVID-19 Pandemic. It was published in The Hill. And uh, what I said is that, listen, we have not even started multi-drug trials. We needed clinical trials of four to six drugs to tackle the problem. They're not difficult drugs to employ, but we needed these clinical trials. We made a gamble collectively, and this was the United States, Canada, South Africa, the EU, the UK, uh, uh, large Australia, largely the developed countries made a gamble. They gambled on zero treatment to people, zero, having them wait in lockdown. And Does then that make sense to you? It makes no sense. And in fact, that gamble now, looking back on it, we gambled away, gambled away hundreds of thousands of lives in the United States. We've costed Americans millions of hospitalizations making that gamble. And I just can't believe that Americans day by day, week by week would turn on the TV and not hear a single word of treatment and not scratch their heads and say, wait a minute, what if I get COVID-19? How is it going to be treated? Well, but basically, the it seemed like the the policy was to go from zero to vaccine, you know? I mean, that's really what it, it feels like. And in between, all you could do was go to the hospital when this thing overcame you. I mean, really. And and um, I the reason why I'm so, I was so interested in talking to you besides your information is because my brother-in-law is a French physician and internist who um, is in charge of treating patients in a large nursing home. And when COVID hit, what he did was he called up uh, DJ Raul and his team and said, what do I do? And they said, okay, well, we have this protocol we think will work and it's uh, hydroxychloroquine, it's, uh, it's uh, Zithromax, high doses of vitamin C, vitamin D, and zinc, I believe is the package. And most of my brother-in-law's patients, I mean, and these are really old people, okay, sailed through. I think he lost two patients. One was 89 and one was 90 something with comorbidities. And so, and I, and I wasn't hearing about anything along these lines in terms of treatment here in the US. And all of a sudden, when you came by, I thought, oh, <laughs> cause you know, Didier Raul has had a lot of problems. He's had a lot of problems, political problems. Well, there's been enormous suppression 
of any information on early treatment. So there's been suppression in the medical literature. There's been reprisal for doctors who are trying to help patients. Um, we have seen horrors in academic medicine in the last year. We saw fraudulent papers published in journals that were retracted. And those papers were designed to frighten other doctors and patients regarding use of commonly uh, available medicines. And I can tell you, I felt compelled to step forward. I'm the most published person in my field in history. I've chaired more data safety monitoring boards of therapies applied in a variety of illnesses than any of my contemporaries. I've seen and examined and cared for COVID-19 patients. I can tell you, I am supremely qualified to give direction on how to handle this pandemic. Patients with COVID-19 over the age of 50 who have medical problems need early ambulatory treatment to reduce hospitalization and death and to withhold that or to suppress it through the medical literature, the popular media, or through reprisal against physicians is immoral, it's unethical, and it's illegal. Okay. Who's doing it and why? The suppression is coming through a complete and total collusion that is linking together the media, uh, the academic literature, uh, academic medical institutions, uh, institutions of education, uh, employment. You can see all this. It is enormous. And it but is who's behind it is my it question. It is comprehensive. It's for you and the listeners to discover. But it is comprehensive. I mean, the comprehensiveness of this uh, cannot be understated. It is absolutely positively comprehensive. Uh, some of it's overt. Um, for instance, uh, um, many of the social media sites have just explicitly said that they are going to scrub any information on early treatment. Uh, and they say it because of this. They simply say that uh, if it's not endorsed by the WHO, the National Institutes of Health, the FDA, or the CDC, now keep in mind, those organizations endorse nothing for patients with early treatment. So that means nothing is going to be endorsed because they endorse nothing for treatment. They don't, they don't offer any uh, opportunity for patients to be treated. And it's a mistake to expect that. These organizations, if they opine on the treatment of patients, they do it two to four years afterwards in terms of position statements or guidelines. Doctors decide with patients uh, uh, on the treatment plan. It's always been that way and it's been a mistake. And I think it's the fear doctors and medical institutions have felt paralyzed. They literally said, listen, we don't know what to do. Government tell us what to do. The government looks at this and the, and the staffers, and these are people doing their best, uh, best possible work, uh, but, but none of them were chosen in their positions to be terribly courageous or have the ability to put things together. Um, they, they individually, one by one, uh, very quickly come up to the conclusion there's not enough evidence. Well, there's not enough evidence to do things. Well, of course, there's not enough evidence. It's too early. We're not going to have enough evidence probably for two to four years. So what we need now is we need clinical judgment and insight to be able to identify signals of benefit, put together combinations of therapy, and to improve outcomes. And that's that's my contribution yeah, but, uh, here, here in the pandemic. But the evidence has been coming in from the field on the treatment, on the early treatment. It's been coming in from the field. And people who have been talking about that evidence have been slammed. 
including you with your study. Okay. So, I, I mean, first of all, I'm going to ask you, what do you think Fauci thinks, Dr. Fauci thinks of your, what your studies and what you're saying? Have you heard from his office or from anybody from the World Health Organization or the NIH? Uh, no, I haven't, but I've uh, testified in the U.S. Senate on November 19th, the Texas Senate on March 10th, the Colorado Senate uh, on, on uh, March 31st. And it's myself and a group of uh, colleagues. We're probably about 400 strong now uh, in the world. And um, our message has gotten out. The two papers that I've cited are the most downloaded papers of those journals, the most highly cited of those journals. They provide the basis for the Association of American Physicians uh, Home Treatment Guide, which we estimate has been used in the United States over a half a million times. Uh, but don't and, you think you should submit those to the World Health Organization and to Fauci directly and say, look, here's, here's, here are these very important studies. Here's what we found. Can't we have a policy for early treatment upon um, you know, uh, uh, upon, I'm going to run, by the way, I, I've run the, your entire testimony before the Texas Senate before this interview. Okay. So, you know, they, they have an idea, the audience already knows what you've done, but my question is why, when you testified before the Senate, for example, uh, what was done with that testimony? Did, did somebody say, this guy needs to talk to the World Health Organization, make, have a meeting, have this guy have a meeting with Dr. Fauci? I mean, has, has there been any response at all? Well, let, let me just give you a few action items that were put uh, to uh, oversight bodies uh, for the National Institute, Institutes of Health uh, specifically. Uh, and that came from the no November 19th uh, uh, testimony in the U.S. Senate. And that is that we needed weekly reviews of the emerging data and all sources of evidence, not just randomized trials, but observational uh, data. Uh, we know that the 21st Century uh, Cures Act basically says that all uh, sources of evidence must be considered by our regulatory agencies, not just randomized trials. So weekly reviews of the evidence and monthly updates of the National Institute's health guidelines. That's the standard that Americans demand um, because the National Institute's of Health at some point in time will need to address ambulatory early COVID-19. Now the work I've done fills the gap until they step up, but to this date they haven't stepped up and now we're having vaccine failures. So we're now we're seeing a wave of COVID patients who have been vaccinated. So they're gonna keep coming at us. So we need early ambulatory treatment um, as part of a guidelines-based approach. So the National Institutes of Health, I think is on schedule to be about two to four years behind. What happened in the Texas Senate is within uh, 48 hours, a legislation was introduced that for patients in Texas who are given a COVID-19 test result that's positive, that they are given information on early treatment where they can access the approved antibodies for infusion what drugs can be used in a protocol and what to ask for, discuss with their doctor. And if their doctor doesn't feel comfortable to seek a referral or to get care via telemedicine services. This is only reasonable at this point in time, given the state of the crisis. 
Now, the National Institute of Health, they started doing a study, right? And you mentioned that they, they closed the study early where they had uh, 20 patients and they said, and, and they were budgeted according to what I read in your study, your 2020 study, your December 2020 study, they were budgeted to have 2,000 patients, but they had, they say they only found 20 and then they couldn't find any more and they shut it down, right? Does that seem like something that was done in good faith to you? I mean, well, I think it was a turning point. I mean, many have lost confidence. Now, keep in mind, the National Institutes of Health is a federal, it's a federal research organization. Yes. The National Institutes of Health is not known as a body that treats patients. They're not known as a body that gives guidance. Well, they're a research body. I mean, they they're do a research, research body, right? So the people at the top are not known to be uh, world-famous clinicians. They're not known to be doctors who take care of patients. You would never, as a patient, go see one of these doctors but they are a research organization. And when they, when they commit to a randomized trial, that is a commitment to the patients and to the public. And for the National Institutes of Health to organize a very simple trial, they were using two of the simplest medicines. We wouldn't do that trial today because we know it takes a lot more than just hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, but they did the simplest of trials as an as a organized approach. And they gave up after 20 patients. And I think when I, when I read into this, it was around that time it became known that a vaccine was going to be developed. And when that happened, Operation Warp Speed basically shifted all the speed and the dollars towards vaccine development and then uh, therapies. And it wasn't just that trial, but it was anticoagulants, other antivirals. All of those were put on the slow gear. I, actually, I published an op-ed on that saying the three gears of Operation Warp Speed, while well, vaccines got all the, the attention and the speed and the, really the billions of dollars invested to them, and Americans, while they suffered with hospitalization and death, really had no focus. Uh, uh, there was no focus on the federal government in terms of developing treatments. And to give you a proxy for that, and I testified in actually both the uh, U.S. Senate and the Texas Senate on that, do you know that when Americans are given a COVID-19 positive test result, there's no access to research. There's no hotline. You think the NIH would at least get a, a 1-800 hotline so patients can call and get access into research, what's available. And when I've talked to NIH officers, what they say is, well, the patients can navigate our website and if they try to navigate or clinicaltrials.gov, let me tell you what, if you're a senior citizen and you have a hot fever and you're short of breath and you're trying to gain access to research, navigating a complicated government website is a useless suggestion. I don't think the National Institutes of Health honestly had any interest in, in providing access to research or access to therapies for patients. Um, and and I'll, I'll say something else is we can spread a lot of the blame around. We're a year into this. Where's the Harvard protocol to treat COVID-19 patients? Where's the Johns Hopkins protocol? How about University of Michigan? How about our blue ribbon institutions where are their COVID clinics? Where are their innovative programs to keep people out of the hospital? Not a single ounce of innovation, not a single ounce of courage. I can't see a single example where a major medical center did anything in terms of treating patients with COVID. Yet those same institutions are extremely interested in outpatients approaches to cancer, heart disease, uh, uh, gastrointestinal disease, 
academic institutions went blank with zero original contributions on how to treat outpatients with COVID-19, zero. I have to say, I mean, this is the whistleblower newsroom. I am highly suspicious that this is because the vaccine was the deal. Because my question to you is, let's say that it had been discovered very early on. All right, this is a virus. We're going to take the multi-therapy approach. We're going to give the, these packages to people who come down with the virus. Don't even, you know, they test positive. They start on this course of, of drugs. And then what would have happened? Because the death rate might not even warrant the development of a vaccine. Well, think about this. When patients uh, become ill with the virus, if they're treated at home, they stay at home and are able to serve out a quarantine period and the virus doesn't leave their house. Now, almost always the family members are affected. 85% of the time there's multiple family members are affected, but that virus extinguishes in the house. If you don't treat it sooner or later, at the last gasp of breath for life, there's a panic and 911 is called, family members are called, patients are brought to the hospital. In each and every one of these millions of hospitalizations that happened in the United States was a massive super spreader event, every single one of them. So by not treating the virus, we contributed massively to the spread of infection. But that's, that's my point though. I mean, the point okay, that I'm but, making is- but, 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 Okay, go but ahead. Hear me out. So if we would have treated it at home, now we'd have to treat everyone. I think it's individuals over age 50. I think with a mortality rate and the hospitalization rate gets over 1%, that's enough to start doing something. Um, we would have treated about a third of adults um, uh, with that uh, risk stratification. And we would have reduced the spread of infection. There would be fewer cases and we would have reduced hospitalization and mortality by 85%. And we would have had patients who had durable and complete immunity. Keep in mind the natural immunity is not just against the spike protein, against the nucleocapsid, against the enzymes, the lipid uh, uh, bilayer. Uh, we have uh, uh, no second and third cases. If, if grandmother was in the United States being hospitalized over and over again with COVID, we would have seen it by now. There are no credible cases of reinfection. So there's no threat. Once you have the infection, it's one and done. The immunity is complete and durable. You're asking about what's the thought process here? If the thought process was, if the master plan was, listen, uh, the treatments are, um, are gonna be difficult. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of confusion. Um, uh, we are simply gonna have the US public hunker down, wear masks, go into lockdown and wait for a vaccine. Okay, if you were gonna achieve that master plan, you would suppress all information on treatment. You would, you would not fund any research. And if you started to do anything, you would shut it down. If there's any drug company that wants to do research with the NIH, you would slow walk it to death, like with the Merck product in Santa Fe or Regeneron. You would not bring in other products that are approved to treat COVID-19, like favipiravir, which is actually approved by other countries. It's an oral drug to treat COVID-19. You wouldn't even bring that in. You would keep people in the dark on treatment and keep them extraordinarily fearful. So keep running a routine on TV, showing more deaths, more suffering, more hospitalizations, keep people in fear. 
And then you would rush forward a vaccine. And then that vaccine, when it's rushed forward, it would have been promoted wildly. And so we know the vaccine, for instance, it was actually on the radio being advertised in October. That was before the clinical trials were even promoted. That violates multiple regulatory acts in the Truth and Advertising Act. And then when the vaccine is um, approved by EUA, when we look at the clinical trials, uh, pregnant women are excluded, women of childbearing age are excluded, COVID recovered patients are excluded, COVID uh, suspected COVID recovered are excluded. All those excluded groups, according to regulatory science, ought to be excluded from the vaccination program. And what our stakeholders did, which is the vaccine manufacturers, the FDA and the CDC, they worked together by saying, vaccinate everyone vaccinate everyone, even if there's no efficacy data, no safety data. We have never seen this in the history of our country of this kind of gross violation of regulatory science. And so now we're off and running. And you saw the, the types of news releases there they are now the military team terms used. Let's get needles in arms. Let's get the trucks rolling. Let's get the vaccine out. And so we've seen that basically the, the, the program on TV now has been a wild and relentless uh, promotion of the vaccine. And it's to the point now where every single uh, news show is about the vaccine and how soon employers are gonna mandate the vaccine and governments mandating vaccines and uh, vaccine passports. Uh, today it came up in one country in Southeast Asia. Now if the vaccine, if, if individuals don't get the vaccine, that in fact, they won't receive social security or health insurance, they'll be stripped of any of the government payments. You can see the level of coercion that's occurring at this point in time. It's absolutely unprecedented what's going on uh, in the world. And keep in mind, there's a very important principle of medical ethics. It's called the principle of autonomy. And the principle of autonomy says that each and every one of us has the right to determine what happens to our body. It's our right to do that. And we can make decisions and get advice from our doctors and healthcare providers, but we, it, we can only do that without coercion. And you can see the mass vaccination program is violating the fundamental principle of medical ethics. I think everybody listening to this ought to be deeply disturbed. You know, again, I will not name my brother-in-law, but what he said to us, my brother-in-law is in his 70s. He's one of those old, super healthy guys, you know. And he said, he said, I will never take the vaccine. Now, he's not anti-vax, but he's, he said, I'm not going to take a vaccine for a treatable illness. And he said, my patients who want it, I'm obliged to give it to them, but I will not take it because this is a treatable illness. That's what he said. And well, my view on that is every medical decision is based on risks and benefits. And so if a patient engages with me on a conversation regarding the vaccine, it's about risks and, and benefits. So let me give you a, a clear cut example. This one ought to be very clear to everybody. So for the millions and millions of people who've had COVID and they've recovered from it, remember these were excluded from clinical trials. Okay, so there's, there's, it's completely untested what the vaccine would do. 
But from a scientific perspective, there should be no opportunity for benefit, none, because people who are COVID recovered don't get the illness over and over again. So the vaccine has nothing to do in a patient who's COVID recovered. In fact, the FDA and the manufacturers knew that. That's the reason why they excluded them from clinical trials. Well, we have one paper from Manchester United Kingdom, which lo and behold, because of the promotion of this, 25% of people vaccinated, in fact, previously had COVID. Those people had double and triple the rates of side effects, including severe adverse reactions that landed them in the hospital. So there you go. So COVID recovered patients, no opportunity for benefit, just an opportunity for harm. I think this is really important for everyone to understand. Doctors ought to understand that, that, um, that in fact, we cannot uh, promote the use of medical products where there's no benefit and only an opportunity for harm. Patient type where there's a real opportunity for benefit. Let me give you an example. Let's say somebody maybe age 50 to 75 who's got a dresser or healthcare worker or someone in a restaurant or waiter, maybe that person, uh, it makes sense to them if COVID-19 for them is a big threat for the person, okay, not for someone else, but for them, if COVID-19 is a personal health threat and they understand the risks and the benefits for them to go forward with vaccination, that's fine. I think myself and others are deeply disturbed with the number of deaths that are accumulating in the CDC vaccine adverse event reporting system. This reporting system, people are reporting deaths. Now, keep in mind when someone dies after the vaccine, someone else has to realize it, be sufficiently worried, and then report it to the uh, event reporting system. So there are some estimates that only 10% of so of deaths actually are reported because if someone came home after a vaccine, a vaccination and they died, the spouse would somehow have to get their code and be able to make an entry or call the CDC. And with the, with the, um, horror don't even that, know this exists, this hotline. Right. People wouldn't even know this exists. So the majority of these are being reported by the personnel in the vaccination center or by people in healthcare workers or other kind of domicile type of situations wh where they feel responsible. They've given the injection and then the person has died. Now, we're at roughly 2,100 uh, deaths in the United States, and let's say 100 million people are vaccinated. To give you uh, an idea, we vaccinated 195 million people last year with the flu shot, and there were 23 reported deaths, okay? So at 2,100 reported deaths, that's alarming. Now at the 1,600 mark uh, on March 8th, uh, the uh, um, CDC put an announcement on their website, a very a short a few sentences, saying that CDC and FDA doctors, now keep in mind the CDC and FDA and the White House task force, they are stakeholders in vaccination, okay, in the NIH, they're stakeholders, but those doctors, CDC and NIH doctors reviewed all the deaths and none of them were related to the vaccine. Do you believe none. that? Well, it, to me, it's incredulous uh, because um, A, it would have taken weeks and weeks to do that type of analysis and go through this carefully. We know the deaths seem to stack up on days one, two, and three. You can read the narratives yourself on the CDC website. So a typical narrative would be a frail nursing home patient was vaccinated at 10 a.m. in the morning. They would develop fevers, chills, nausea, vomiting, difficulty breathing at night, and found dead the next day. That's a typical vaccine death. And so 
um, uh, it, it, there are clear warnings that because people have had sudden death in the vaccination centers that there must be resuscitation equipment and what have you. So the public must be scratching in their heads that if none of the deaths are related to the vaccine, then why, are the, why is resuscitation equipment needed in the vaccine centers, as an example? Or they may be scratching their head, why was the AstraZeneca vaccine pulled from 14 uh, European markets uh, because of uh, the risk of blood clotting, and then it kind of was suspended for a period of time, then was reintroduced. Why did just a few days ago, Canada now restrict the AstraZeneca vaccine from people under age 55 because of an excess rate of blood clots in the brain called cavernous venous thrombosis? I mean, what we're really seeing is kind of a horror show of a mass vaccination and um, with the filtering of the media and the inability for the public to get a fair look at, at efficacy and safety, many of us are getting concerned. When I, when I read about the efficacy of the early treatment package, I was, I, I tell you, I was absolutely shocked, absolutely shocked. An early treatment plan is, is cohesive with a, a strategic and targeted vaccination plan. So there's no reason why we can't treat COVID-19 patients now, reduce hospitalization and death, and then intelligently uh, vaccinate a select group of patients to try to improve upon the pandemic. Keep in mind the vaccine fails, so we still have to treat patients anyway. Just uh, yesterday in Washington state was a release of 100 vaccine failures, eight of which were hospitalized. So it's still going to happen, hopefully in fewer numbers. But I think we can do early treatment and have a rational vaccination program. I'm just deeply disturbed about this overpromotion to COVID recovered patients, pregnant women. That's another one. Pregnant women, we never apply new therapies and treatments that are considered investigational to pregnant women. The FDA and the sponsors excluded pregnant women from the vaccine trials, they were specifically excluded. And then sure enough, in the first week of vaccination, there we go, pregnant women are uh, getting vaccinated. Now, now keep in mind, people are volunteering to do this. It's not like, uh, uh, you, know, you know, it's not like, you know, the military is, is invading people's homes and jabbing them. People are, you know, voluntarily agreeing to do it at this point. Well, they've been propagandized um, to death. Right, but they still have to make individual decisions. A pregnant woman has to has to think about this when they sign the consent form. The consent form says very specifically, listen, this is investigational. We don't know if it's gonna work. We don't know how long it's gonna work. We don't know about the long-term safety. We're asking you to give up all your rights. That means maternal fetal rights, anything else. Uh, it is amazing that any woman uh, would do this. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it is concerning. And one of the clinical trials program uh, eight women by accident did get pregnant in the randomized clinical trial vaccines and four of them had miscarriages and stillbirths. So, um, uh, and certainly women who've been vaccinated, uh, pregnant vaccinated since the um, uh, launch of the vaccine program have had trouble. Now, maybe the, some who have vaccinated did get a benefit, we don't know. People have said, what is the benefit of the vaccine? Well, keep uh, in mind in the clinical trials, uh, this was done when we had more cases in the fall, um, there were less than 1% rates of COVID-19 in the vaccine group and in the placebo group. That's in the two months after being vaccinated. So the vaccine from a public health perspective, if we follow the science, that's kind of the mantra of the day, follow the science, the vaccine program per two month increment will have less than a 1% public health impact. So I've always said for such a low impact 
uh, effort, we shouldn't overemphasize it. We should be focusing on treatment, which we have you know, 45 to 60,000 new cases a day, 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. Our focus should be every day on treatment, treatment, treatment. We should have treatment centers. Our major academic institutions ought to have COVID-19 treatment clinics. Patients ought to know, when soon as they get their test result, they ought to know what to do. The they, they ought to have some real alarm bells going off. Right now to this day, our poor patients are scrambling. They don't know what to do. The nursing homes are on a complete scramble. It really is a mess because we haven't focused on early treatment and we've had an over-focus on vaccination, which has a very low public health impact and, and, and in rare cases has harm, including uh, death and, and serious complications. I have to leave it at that, but I wanna tell you, uh, thank you very much for the work you do and for coming on the show. Thank you.